0: well good morning college park my name is luke humphrey i'm one of the pastoral residents here at this church and i believe unless i can i told mark this unless i can bribe brad merchant away from giving me labor day that this will be my last time preaching at college park as a resident so i want to publicly take just a couple moments and say thank you thank you as a church for listening to young guys grow and develop in their preaching of the word and for loving the Bible more than you love our deficiencies. Thank you elders and pastors for being the godly leaders that you are who shepherd the flock of God that Jesus has given to you. It's been amazing to see how our church has grown over the last couple years in shepherding and you guys are high caliber men and I'm thankful for you. Thank you to our small group leaders. I've been able to work with you guys most probably, and I'm grateful for all of you and how you shepherd the flock. One of the things that I'm so thankful for about College Park is that we believe that the Bible is authoritative, not the preacher. So it doesn't matter whether it's coming to you from Pastor Mark or from Tim Whitney, who's sprinting all over the stage here, keeping the video guys on their toes, or through me, who will be right here. Maybe I'll move this way, but usually I'll be right here. You guys love the Bible, and I love you. With that, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for the spirit that unites us all to you. Thank you for this text and this word. Help us to see you clearly in it, And love you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in the middle of a summer sermon series called Come to Jesus. And what we're doing in this series is we are looking at encounters with Jesus throughout the Gospel of John and throughout the Gospel of Luke. And we're looking at how Jesus interacted with people from different backgrounds and showed them his beauty and his glory in the Gospel. Two weeks ago, Pastor Mark helped us to see how Jesus confronted Nicodemus, a self-righteous Pharisee, and how he tore down the idols in his life in order to show him that as righteous as he thought he was, he needed to be born again. Last week, Tim Whitney showed us that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And that includes unrighteous, unjust sinners like Zacchaeus, that no one is too far from Christ. This week, we're going to look at how the gospel applies to a woman with a past that she would like to forget. Even with this woman, Jesus approaches her with both compassion and with conviction. In our text this morning, we see a woman who had an encounter with Jesus, and it it led to her recognizing her actual and her true need. Like a doctor who, or like a patient who goes to see a doctor for back pain only to realize that there's actually a tumor that's cancerous. So this woman went to the well looking for something, only to realize that her need was far worse than she actually thought. And what we're going to see here in this text is that Jesus reveals to us that our need is worse than we think, but that his goodness is far more satisfying than we could imagine. Our need may be worse than we think, but his glory and goodness is far more satisfying than we can imagine. And to look at that, we're going to see four different aspects to this text. We're going to look at how Jesus engages with this woman. We're going to look at how Jesus pursues this woman. We're going to look at how Jesus proclaims to this woman. And we're going to look at how this woman responds to Jesus. So with that in mind, we have a lot to cover this morning, so let's jump into John chapter 4, verse 1. We just heard it read. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that is, John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, Near the field that Jacob, the patriarch of Israel, had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, this is still at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And yet already we can see Jesus is growing his influence. He's just begun. And yet he has made and baptized more people, not himself, but his disciples have baptized, more people than John. The Baptist, who all Israel was going out to. It's pretty remarkable. And so either in an effort to preserve unity with John's disciples, not having this division of, are you a follower of Jesus or are you a follower of John, or whether to avoid persecution from the Pharisees, his time had not yet come, Jesus decides he's going to leave from Judea and depart for Galilee. But to get there, he chooses to go through Samaria. Samaria. Now, there's a couple of key things to note about this time and this place. As we'll see, Samaria is not a place that Jews would want to be during Jesus' day. This was the bad part of Israel for the Jewish community. In the sixth hour, noon, was not the time when most people were at the well. It was hot. You don't do the manual labor in the heat of the day. So Jesus comes to the wrong part of Israel at the wrong time of day... And yet he does so purposefully and intentionally. And then all of a sudden we're introduced to a woman. A woman who introduces at this scene. Look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus is at the wrong place, at the wrong time of the day. His disciples go into the city to get food and then a woman comes. To meet him, she's by herself during the hottest time of the day. She's from the wrong ethnic background. She's a Samaritan. We need to recognize the awkwardness of the situation. If you're a first-century reader, you are cringing at this inside. Right? You look at this and you're like, no, 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 no. You're in the wrong place, and you're talking to her, this woman who's there. And yet Jesus didn't cringe. Jesus didn't step away. Jesus didn't pull out his smartphone and hide behind his Facebook feed. What does Jesus do? He engaged with this woman. Look at the second half of verse 7. Jesus is the one who initiates. Give me a drink. He's the one who initiated this conversation. He's the one who asks for a drink from this woman. Don't miss this. This is Jesus' conversation. He may be at the wrong place at the wrong time of the day with the wrong woman and yet he's fully in control as our family has been preparing to move to the uae to plant a church uh, i've been able to meet with a lot of different people and cast a vision for what we're doing and develop partners and i've had a handful of times the experience of shooting an email scheduling a meeting getting coffee with someone only to realize this wasn't my meeting this was their meeting They came with an agenda. They're driving the meeting. They're asking the questions. They're dictating what questions they want answered. I actually love those meetings because it makes the conversation go by really quickly. This is Jesus' meeting here. This woman is just wanting to get water and go out, and yet Jesus is setting up this meeting. He is driving the conversation. It's not coincidental. And this catches the woman totally off guard. Look at her response in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew... Ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaria, Samaritans. John really wants us to pick up on the fact that this woman is a Samaritan. That according to the culture and custom of the day, Jesus should not be having a conversation with her at all. I mean, he flat out tells you that in verse 9. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And you can't miss the fact that in six verses, verses four through nine, we see that Jesus passes by Samaria to a town of Samaria, interacted with a woman from Samaria, and this Samaritan woman how, asked Jesus how he would ask her, a woman from Samaria, for a drink because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I wonder if John wants to make clear the fact that this woman's a Samaritan. There's a significant cultural barrier here between Jesus and this woman. In Jesus' day, the Samaritans were kind of like a mixed people. They had their Jewish background, and yet when the Assyrians came and removed Israel from the land, some Israelites remained there, and they intermarried with the people from Assyria, and then from Babylon, and then from the other nations. And they didn't just intermarry and break the old covenant commandment that Israel was called to be distinct They also incorporated false worship of other gods and religious habits into their worship. And so you have a people here who Jews would look at and would despise. They're half-breeds and false worshipers. And yet, here is Jesus. Not just in Samaria. Not just trying to book it through as fast as he can. But he's engaging with this woman. He's asking her to give him a drink. Why is this woman here, though? At this time of the day. Remember I said that this is the wrong time of the day for people to be at the well. Why is she here? Well, she's here drawing water by herself. Likely because as we'll learn in a little bit, she has a past that she wants to forget. And a present that is full of sin. She doesn't want the other townspeople to know who she is or to recognize who she is. She views herself as an alien, as an outsider, as someone who's despised. And so she comes at a time when she knows there will be no other people to get water, to disappear, to hide. Put yourself in Jesus' place for a moment. You're wearied from the travel. The text says Jesus is wearied from the journey. You're in the heat of the day. Your friends have left you. How would you respond? I know exactly how I'd respond. I've done it before. Five o'clock, rolls around, I get a text message from my wife. We're out of milk. Can you swing by and pick some up on the way home? So I go to my car and drive down the road to the Kroger off of 86th Street, which, let's be honest, is about a mile away and several significant cultural barriers away from 96th in Town. And if I'm there, my goal in that moment is to get in, get out, without eye contact, as cheaply and efficiently as possible. I make a beeline for the milk. I go to the self-checkout register so I don't have to talk to anybody. And then I'm on my way home. Jesus doesn't do that, though. Jesus doesn't do that. He crosses the cultural barrier. He puts up with the physical tiredness. He deals with the heat. And he engages with this woman. So we should ask exactly the same question that Jesus asked. Who are you? Who are you that you are having interaction with me, a Samaritan woman? And then look what Jesus does. Jesus begins to draw this woman out. He begins to show this woman her true need. You see, she thinks that she just needs water. But Jesus is going to show her that she needs something far deeper. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying it to you, give me a drink, then you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You're by yourself, Jesus. You don't have a, you don't have a bucket. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Jacob gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of life, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I do not have to be thirsty or have to come here to draw the water. Do you see how Jesus interacts and engages with this woman? First, he shows value to her. Though she's a Samaritan, he steps into her world and honors her. Then he winsomely and purposefully begins to cause her to think about what she really needs and who Jesus really is. See that in verse 10? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying it to you. Flat out, this woman needs to know who is she talking to and what does she need? And what's so interesting here is that as this woman begins to wrestle with this question, she's essentially asking Jesus to tell her who he is. Her questions are basically, verse 9, who are you that as a Jewish man you would talk to me? Verse 11, who are you that you're able to give me living water? Verse 12, who are you that you are greater than our father Jacob? And what's amazing is that as Jesus engages with this woman, he doesn't tell her who he is yet. He draws her in. You can see that. And she fully doesn't understand what her need is. She's not ready to know who Jesus is because she doesn't know who she is and what her need is. She thinks she still needs water, and that's it. College Park, beware beware of jumping too quickly in our evangelism to the conclusion of the gospel before people realize what their actual need is. Lest people think that Jesus simply came to give them a good earthly life, that Jesus just came To give them a happy marriage, a healthy self-image, water from a well. We want to show people their true need so that they can see who Jesus truly is. So the Samaritan woman does not yet understand who she is and what Jesus is saying. But Jesus doesn't leave her there. He doesn't throw up his hands and say, well, I tried. She must just be hard-hearted. Jesus pursues her. He pursues this woman. Look at the way that he reaches out to her. And he does it in a very strange way. He brings up the sin in her past. Verse 16 Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And here we get a glimpse at a possible reason why this woman is here by the well at herself. Likely her past and her present have made her an outlaw. This is a woman who is messy and broken. She's presently engaged in sexual sin, living with a man who is not her husband. And she's been through five marriages in her past. Now, we don't know whether these marriages were marriage and divorce, marriage and divorce, or whether this was marriage and death, remarriage and death, or a combination of such. But here's what we do know. Her past is full of pain, and her present is full of sin. And Jesus loves her far too much to overlook this. He loves her too much to overlook her need. Remember, this woman only thinks that she's thirsting after And only thinks that she needs water. Jesus shows her that she's actually been thirsting after something far more than that. She's been thirsting after sexual fulfillment, fulfillment in her relationships, looking for love in all the wrong places. Some of you know this is like. You have friends who go from relationship after relationship seeking the perfect spouse, they're never satisfied. And they get hurt and broken in the process. Or some of you are so deeply hooked in sexual sin that you've alienated yourself from the life of the church and the life of others. You are hiding, going to the well at the wrong time of day so that others don't see you. Some of you are here and you're, you're, you're hiding in plain sight. You might be living and sleeping with someone who's not your spouse and yet you're coming to church on a holiday weekend, no less, dressed up in your best clothes and saying the right things what Jesus reveals is that he knows your sin and he knows your shame far more than you do even. But like this woman, he wants to bring it up, not to guilt you, not to shame you, not to condemn you, but to reveal to you what you are really seeking after so that you can find life. You think you just need water. Your need is far worse than that. You need to be satisfied, yet because of your sin, you are unfulfilled. Your thirst needs to be quenched, but because of your sin, you're parched. But here's a beautiful thing that we see from this text, is that Jesus knows this about this woman, and he pursues her anyway. He pursues her anyway. When Jesus pursues us, he doesn't pursue the best version of ourselves. You know that, right? You don't have to clean yourself out for Jesus. When Jesus pursues us, he pursues the worst of us. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. And he goes after us because he loves us. He pursues us despite our brokenness and sin. But this woman is not ready to be found yet. She's been confronted with her sin, and yet she's still hiding. She's not yet aware of who she's speaking to, and she doesn't want to find out. So she sees an opportunity to change the subject, and she jumps on it. Look at verse 19. The woman said to her, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, even giving this woman the benefit of the doubt, Jesus did, after all, just reveal something to her that she'd been trying to hide, we all have to acknowledge is a pretty rough segue. This is a pretty rough transition here. The woman's basically saying, you know, while we're on the topic of my sexual sin, what's your position on the millennium? Are you an amillennial, a premillennial, or a postmillennial? Some of you parents know what this is like um, when the time of discipline comes for your children, and that's when they get all cute and snuggly and cuddly, and they're smiling and bouncing, and, Daddy, I love you. You're like, don't change the subject on me here. Like, we still got to deal with this. What's amazing here about Jesus is that as this woman begins to change the subject, she's been exposed, she's running away, Jesus doesn't pull a gotcha moment. He doesn't paint her into a corner. He doesn't pounce on her and say, don't change the subject. He goes with her. He goes with her. Now, this was a debate that was happening there, the, the 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 place of worship, the Samaritans believe that we worship in one place, the Jews believe that we worship in another place. So this woman knows that this is an opportunity that she could get Jesus off on a tangent and get the focus off of herself. And Jesus actually goes with her. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus answers her question. I was stunned by that. He cares enough about her to answer her real, genuine question, regardless of whether it was a change of subject or not. He goes and answers her. And what he says is that because of his incarnation and appearance flash back to his words in the temple in John 2 where Jesus speaks about the temple of his body, what Jesus is saying that it doesn't matter where you worship. What matters is who you worship and how you worship him. The nature of your worship. The Father is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. Some of you may be here today and you're worshiping, or you think you're worshiping God, but you're actually not, some of you may be not even owning the name Christian. You come here just wanting to check out what Christians do, and you chose this weekend as, as good as any other to do so. But here's the thing. This is what Jesus tells us here. All of us are real worshipers. All of us are worshipers. Whether it's worshiping at the temple of Instagram and self-image, Worshipping as a temple of sexual gratification and fulfillment, or worshiping on the mountain of Samaria, all of us are worshipers. The question is not whether you will worship, the question is who or what will you worship? The most sophisticated secularist is as much of a worshiper as the illiterate Spiritist who prays to his ancestors. All of us are worshipers. The question is, how will you worship? And what Jesus shows, that this woman, she doesn't need water. She doesn't need water. Her need is worse than she thinks. She needs to worship truly. She needs true worship because her present worship, both her Samaritan worship, but then also her worship of her sexual sin will only lead to her condemnation and her death. This woman needs eternal life. Because apart from it, she's eternally dead. But the woman is still backing away and retreating. Look at what she says in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And while some people may interpret this to be a genuine statement, I'm a little bit more skeptical. I think that this woman is just trying to get out of the conversation at this point. Basically saying, well, I guess we'll have to wait till Messiah gets here. This is a good chat. You do you, I'll do me. See you later, Jesus. And this is when Jesus steps in and answers her first question. Remember verse 10? What did Jesus tell her? If you knew the gift of God and who it is, who it is who is saying it to you, you would have asked her, him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus finally answers her question and proclaims who he is. Jesus has engaged with this woman and initiated a conversation with her. He has pursued this woman despite her retreat. And now he proclaims who he is and provides the hope that she can cling to. Look at verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. This woman may be throwing away a comment, trying to get out of a conversation, but what Jesus shows is that she is exactly correct. When the Messiah gets here, he will tell her all things, and Jesus has just done it. Jesus, as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the King of Israel, who would provide the salvation for the whole world, he's speaking to her. the Samaritan woman. And this is where we see the glorious hope of the gospel message. Our need, this woman's need, is far worse than we think. And yet Jesus' goodness is far more satisfying than we could imagine. Our need is for eternal life. And Jesus gives it to us in himself. All of this woman's searchings have come to their fulfillment in the person of Jesus She's been alienated because of her sin. In Christ, she finds a home and a people that she can be a part of. She's been left unsatisfied, going from spouse to spouse, partner to partner. In Christ, she finds the perfect husband, who will die for his bride, will wash her pure as snow. She's left unfulfilled by her searchings, and yet in Jesus, she finds a new mission and a new commission She's been worshiping the false gods of sex and Samaria. In Jesus, she's confronted with a true God, who welcomes her with open arms. There's a beautiful picture of grace here. Those seven little words, "I who speak to you am He," contain all the hope that this woman needs. This woman can turn because of Christ. She can turn from her sin, stop living in rebellion to God, and instead find her joy in the goodness and the glory of Jesus Christ as her King, Lord, and Messiah. That's grace. And look at how the woman responds to this proclamation of Christ. The disciples get back from their quest to find bread in town. We'll get back to them in a minute. And what does this woman do? Verse 27, Just then the disciples come back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? They're wondering the same things that this woman is. Why are you talking to her? But no one says it. They're too scared. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Having recognized the depth of her need and the goodness of Jesus, she immediately drops her water jar. Her water jar the very thing she had come to the well for. She goes back and she tells the entire town of the living water that she has found. Feel how staggering this is. Remember, this woman is at this well at this time of day precisely because she doesn't want to be seen by her townspeople. She's hiding. Then she meets Jesus. And what does she do? She reveals herself. She goes to the town and proclaims to them the goodness of Christ. She rallies the entire townspeople to say, Come! I found the water! I found the Messiah! Could this be him? So remarkable is this woman's transformation that the townspeople are willing to follow her. They're willing to go with her. This woman who is just evangelized by Jesus becomes an evangelist for Jesus. Oh, Oh, that we would have the passion for evangelism that we first did when we came to know Christ. That we would long to tell others of the living water that we found. And then look at how the townspeople respond. Verse 39, jump ahead a little bit. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came... They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two more days. And many more believed in him because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know indeed that you, Jesus, are the Savior of the world. The Samaritans, these ethnic half breeds, find their life in Christ. They see Jesus because of this woman as the Savior, not just of the Jewish people. Don't miss this. The Samaritans see him as the Savior of the world, the entire world. This is fuel for mission to Dubai, and this is fuel to mission for Indianapolis. Jesus came to save sinners. And it doesn't matter what your tongue, tribe, people, or nation is. Jesus is your savior. He's the savior of the world. The woman responded to the grace of Christ. And she finds a new identity with him. She sees the depth of her need, and she sees the goodness of his glory. And then she leads others to see that goodness too. The goal of this sermon series is to look at encounters with Jesus to learn for, from Jesus how he engaged people and shared with them the gospel. We've seen here this morning that with this woman, what Jesus does is he reveals that our need is worse than we think, but that his goodness is far more satisfying than we could imagine. I'm to close this morning with a practical application, a sobering warning, and a glorious reminder. First, a practical application in order to even have this conversation jesus had to be intentional with his time so many of us miss gospel opportunities because we just don't bring intentionality into the equation we're on cruise control and we ought to be on mission jesus was purposeful in the way that he conducted his life and jesus initiated he pursued in a way that this woman would understand What are some ways? What are some ways that you could engage with non-believers in your life, in your sphere of relationships? Without intentionality, you won't. You may walk alongside non-believers, but if we're not purposeful, we won't ever be able to have the conversation like Jesus did to point to them their need for living water. A practical application that I commend to you is our backyard Bible clubs that are next Generation Ministries is helping us put on. You can learn more by going to the local outreach wall. We need more. I charge you to sign up and to host one or participate in one. But what these things are so good at, these backyard Bible clubs are, is because, let's be honest, today is July 2nd. We're at the time of the summer when parents can't wait to see their kids go back to school. They are longing for structure and routine. You get to provide the hope of structure for them for a week. You can take them off their parents' hands for a couple hours, or five days. Parents would jump at that. And in doing so, what you can do is you are able to speak to the kids about the goodness of Jesus. You're able to meet your neighbors if you've never met them before. You're able to initiate conversations and follow up and, and not just do one week of ministry, but begin a lifetime of ministry that comes from living and engaging where you are. Backyard Bible clubs, a practical application. Head back to, to learn more and look for ways this week, even, that you can engage with the non believers in your life. Second, a sobering warning. A sobering warning. Let's come back to the disciples. We kind of skipped over them, we went by the bypass. Let's come back to the disciples for a moment. John adds this parenthesis in verses 31 through 38, I think, to remind and to warn us, lest we too fall prey to what these disciples fell prey to. In these verses, we see that the disciples are just as concerned as the woman is about their temporary needs. They go into the city to get bread. Remember what the disciples knew about Jesus. They knew that he was the Messiah. They're following him precisely for that reason. They know what the hope of the world is, and yet they're just as concerned about getting their physical needs met as this woman was. We see a stark contrast between the way that the woman responds when she goes into town, having learned of who Jesus is, and the way the disciples respond. The disciples go into town, get their bread, and come back to Jesus. The woman goes into town dispenses living water for all of the townspeople to see. And the entire town floods to meet Jesus. And here's the disciples standing there, probably wondering, where would all these people come from? We're in Samaria. And Jesus tells them, you missed it. You had an opportunity to sow and to reap, but now this woman did all the work. You have to watch as what she labored for gets reaped. They were so concerned about their temporary needs that they missed an opportunity to see a gospel conversation. Church, let's let's learn from these disciples. Let's be warned by them about being so distracted about our physical needs, our physical comfort, our desire for a perfectly unawkward day that we miss out on a gospel conversation. When you go to Kroger or Costco this afternoon, I know there's a whole host of you guys who go to Costco because I'm one of you. When you go to Costco this afternoon, look for gospel opportunities. Don't choose the self-checkout. A practical application here, choose the longest line and have a phenomenal conversation with somebody. The line's going to be huge at Costco anyway. Think about how much gospel you could share in that. Who knows what God will do through your proclamation of Christ. And finally, In this passage, we see a glorious reminder. We see a glorious reminder. This morning, we've been looking at how Jesus shared the gospel with conviction and compassion. And we're looking to learn from Jesus. This is good and this is proper, right? Disciples learn from their masters. We learn how to preach from Jesus and we learn how to pray from Jesus. But here's a glorious reminder we're not Jesus in this passage. We're not the heroes of this story. Jesus is the hero. Do you know who we are? We're the woman. We're the woman. It doesn't matter how long you've been a follower of Jesus. You are the sexually broken. You are the one who has been seeking after fulfillment in something that will not satisfy. You are the one who is parched in a desert looking for water. We're the pagan idolaters. And then we came to Jesus. And Titus 3 is our testimony. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's who you are. That's who you were. That's your past. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the new birth that Nicodemus needed to see, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, having been made right with God by the grace of Christ, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. We were filthy and broken and messy. And then we came to Jesus. Or rather, he came to us. And we found our life in him. He bore our condemnation on the cross. He took our self-worship, our pagan idolatry, our hating of others, and he nailed it to the cross with his body. And then he rose from the dead and gave us new life, that living water that will satisfy us forever. And for all eternity, we get the joy of seeing the goodness of Christ. Forever. If you're here this morning and you don't know that goodness, I would love to talk with you afterwards. When you met Jesus, he revealed that your need was worse than you thought. When you met Jesus, he revealed that his glory and goodness were far more satisfying than you could ever imagine. College Park, let's respond the way this woman responded. And as we have come to Jesus... Let's draw, through the gospel proclamation and the grace of God, others to Christ as well. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this text. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus, you are far more satisfying than anything we could imagine. Lord, we pray that you would give us a delight in the salvation that we have received. That we would love you and treasure you more because of your glory and your goodness. And the Lord, we would seek to bring others to you so that they can be satisfied with you as well. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.